Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 148 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's impeach o'clock. <laughs> Is it happening like as we speak? Um, I mean, no, because, you know, there are various procedural objections to the the House vote. But sometime today, I think President Trump is going to be the, the third president and the 20th federal officer in American history to be impeached by the United States House of Representatives. And uh, how long until he's acquitted in the Senate? What's the how, how many over under number by do the over under by number of Scaramucci's? <laughs> I forget what the I forget what unit of time or space. Isn't that is. 10 and a half days? Isn't that a Scaramucci? It's like a parsec. <laughs> Oh, Scaramucci. Well, uh, yes, yes. Let's have a whole movie devoted to resolving one, you know, inaccuracy in an, in a in a canonical movie from forty years ago. Was that shots fired at uh, Solo? At, at Solo. I thought. Actually, can I just digress and yeah, say that yeah. I thought Solo was pretty good. Um, not not fantastic, but definitely in it. Maybe the upper half. Upper, upper half. half. That's strong. Well, there's there's you know. Remember, we've had uh, the three prequels to to. So this 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 all, this reminds me. So when are you going to go see the Last Skywalker? I don't have tickets yet, and apparently that's a serious obstacle if you've not booked them far in advance. Mm. Have you got tickets? Uh, no, Karen and I are sitting down tonight to negotiate. So Karen and I basically don't see movies all year. So you're going to negotiate which movies? Because um, Karen's parents are coming into town. They're actually in the air as we speak. And Wait, then, can I say real quick? Yeah. Um, for those who aren't used to us and are tuning in because they think they're going to hear something useful about national security law, I promise you we'll get to that. This is not out of the ordinary. We're going to digress. Well, because we don't, you know, this is like, we, this is us catching up, right? This like, is true. You know, we, we, even though our offices are five doors down from each other, we see each other too seldom. So yeah. it's like, hey, what's going on? This is a water cooler show. This yeah. is our water cooler. Yeah, basically. Welcome so, to the water cooler with us. So, so, so the last two weeks of the year are basically when Karen and I do all of our movie watching. Okay. So what's on deck? Um, it's a good question. So Knives Out for sure. Okay. Um, Thumbs up. Star Wars, at least for me, we'll see if I can yeah. drag Karen along. Okay. And then after that, it's really up in the air. There's a lot of debating going on. I want to see 1917. She yeah. doesn't. Thumbs up. Okay. Well, I, maybe you and I can solve. <laughs> we might have the same problem on some of these. I think so, I see. A we'll, have, we'll have Bobby Steve movie night and Heather Karen movie night. Oh my God, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so we're in for Knives Out as well. Of course, we had neither Heather or, or I have seen Frozen Two yet. We need to take Alice for the second time. She yeah, saw it with the friend. You better show yourself. Yeah, I know we'll be there. Um, you, you know, head into the unknown. I don't. I feel like you're referencing song lyrics that I don't know. I certainly am. <laughs> It'd be better if you sang them. Um, it really wouldn't be. No, although, although, although we should we should say that the, our frivolity today is Dear Evan Hansen. That's right, y'all. Uh, so. Believe it or not, in between this frivolity and that frivolity, we'll talk national security. By the way, what are we going to talk about today? So we're actually not going to talk about impeachment. Phew. Yeah. Um, you don't need you don't need this show to no. hear something about what went down with impeachment today. But we are going to talk about a couple of related. We, we, there, there are two big Trump landia topics um, that I, I'm mindful as I'm as I'm listening to us that we really do need to get pop filters. Um, yes. But uh, there, we have two big Trump landia uh, uh, topics. The first is the continuing fallout from the IG report uh, from Inspector DOJ Inspector General Horowitz. Um, there was actually I think a really interesting order issued yesterday by Rosemary Collier, who is the outgoing presiding judge of the FISA court. That I think it's worth actually talking about a bit and putting it in context. Um, and then we want to talk about. Also, what the Supreme Court did on Friday, um, granting all three, granting certiorari, granting review, agreeing to hear all three of the big pending Trump subpoena financial records cases um, in March. So, say a bit about that. 
Um, and you know, I think that's going to get us a that good chunk of the it. way. And yeah. then, and then, you know, talk about Dervin Hansen, which we both saw um, what yeah. Friday night here in Austin. Yeah. The, okay. So well, let's dive in first. Which one of those do you want to take on? Well, Dervin Hansen, but you know, yeah. we'll save that for last. <laughs> we gotta save the dessert. <laughs> don't start with your dessert. So I'll start. I mean, I'll start with the IG report. And so you, you're actually uh, right after this, you're going to sit. Uh, you're going to to sort of switch perspectives. Not 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 really, but but switch uh, switch sparring I'm partners. Shows. Yeah. Exactly. I will. Uh, uh, be on later today, Stuart Baker's fabulous Steptoe Cyber Law podcast, you know, which is the, one of the granddaddies of the of the genre. And, and when you think about you know sparring partners on podcasts, I mean Stuart Baker and me were like you know I mean just no, it's funny two peas in the pod. Yeah, it's really fun to kind of pivot from the one to the other. Uh, if if you don't regularly listen to Steptoe Cyber Law podcast and you care at all about um, uh, the intersection of law, policy, and cyber domain and activities. Snark. And if you just enjoy uh, repartee and provocateurs, this this such it's such an enjoyable show. So it'll be me, David Chris, Bob uh, Litt, and Stuart Baker talking about the Horowitz report, uh, mainly focusing on the FISA or FISC uh, issue. So let's let's talk a little bit about this. So this is all precipitated preview. It's precipitated by the uh, the report of the Inspector General. Um, the Horowitz report, which I think let's start with the sort of the biggest headline takeaways. This is an investigation by the OIG into the opening and then the investigative processes associated with the Russia investigation, Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI's counterintelligence investigation. That, among other things, uh, can be understood as uh, first a, a broad counterintelligence investigation into Russian election interference in 2016, and then four individual related investigations, including most relevantly the Carter Page uh, investigation, which is to say an investigation into whether he was acting as an agent of, uh, uh, of Russia. Uh, and suffice to say that the investigation is very incompatible, or that the Horowitz report is completely incompatible with any claim that there was any affirmative proof found of political bias. There's endless statements in the report saying that there was no evidence found, testimonial or documentary, of, of political bias, etc. Um, on the other hand, this is the first really serious deep dive we've seen uh, in public into a FISA Title I application process. And it is riddled. It turns out to be riddled with really significant errors. It's it's a it's a devastating, it's a devastating development for FBI's credibility in particular. And we'll unpack that. It's 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 a it's a critique of FBI, not DOJ, National Security Division, um, and there potentially, although we'll see, there's potentially going to be some significant downstream costs to FBI. If cost is the right word, and I'm not sure it is, in terms of uh, this resulting in certainly it will result in new internal executive branch policies that that will change how these applications unfold. Uh, the more interesting question is, will there also be legislation? I'll be interested in your thoughts on that, Steve. So um, how about I just detail the in a very loose way what the uh, critiques were? Um, the context is that it's all focused on the decision to seek 
orders from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in order to conduct electronic surveillance targeting Carter Page's communications in particular. That's what this is all about. Based on based on the based on the government's assertion that there was probable cause to believe that Carter Page was working as an agent of a foreign power during the 2016 presidential campaign. Bingo. So the way we've we've done deep dives on FISA before, but real quick um, recap. This is not about fancy 702 collection or telephone metadata or any of the stuff we normally think of as the controversial parts of FISA. This is about the original baseline FISA system, what we call Title I, where it's the foreign intelligence analog to ordinary criminal justice Title III wiretap orders. In both cases, the uh, required it's an ex parte process in which the government comes in uh, via a declaration or a sworn, a sworn affidavit uh, from the government investigator saying, here, here are the facts or the evidence that we know. A lot of it will be repetition of hearsay, et cetera. That's, that's how these things work. It's presented to the court in order to try to make a probable cause showing. In the Title III criminal justice context, it's probable cause to believe a crime's been committed. In the FISA context, it's probable cause to believe that a particular type of foreign intelligence value is to be had from the surveillance, like Steve said, that the target is an agent of a foreign power. And so that's what they were trying to show. Um, You have an original application and three renewal applications, all of which were granted. And Horowitz shows that there were a slew of especially omissions. 17. 17 different things, most of them being omissions, things that were material, either to what you could call the uh, the probable cause case in chief. That is, things that were material to uh, contradicting the building blocks of the case to show that uh, Page was a foreign power agent of a foreign power, and then a lot of it was uh, the critical collateral issue of the credibility of who is it that's providing the underlying information. So you've got a person who's swearing out the affidavit, but what they're doing is channeling the out of court statements of the source, the person with firsthand knowledge, or in this case. You have a uh, sort of a top-level source who's then in turn channeling the statements of other people. So what's the chain here? You have various FBI agents who are producing the affidavit. What they are, in, for the most part, repeating is stuff that Christopher Steele, the former intelligence officer from a foreign country who was in private practice for many years and had been hired by Fusion GPS to conduct opposition research on Trump and the Trump campaign, uh, but Trump in particular, uh, and who in turn had drawn on his network of sources to uh, develop information, really derogatory information, including the claim that there was a, quote, well-developed conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russian government to, uh, you know, exchange basically political dirt on Hillary Clinton, including the emails uh, in exchange for favors towards Russia's preferred policies, such as changing GOP policy on Ukraine and that sort of thing. Now, Fusion GPS had hired Steele to do this. Fusion GPS had been hired by the, the campaign, uh, the Democrats, to conduct this sort of work. Um, Steele is both sharing this information with certain media sources and then eventually with the FBI. Once the FBI gets this, it looks like a solution to a problem they had. See, they had tried previously to to pursue a FISA uh, application against Carter Page, had decided uh, the DOJ and FBI had kind of collectively determined that there wasn't enough evidence previously. But once this Steele dossier material becomes available, then the idea was, well, OK, now we've got we've got more because Steele is a 
confidential human source we've used in the past. We've got some reason to trust him. So let's channel his information and use that as the basis for showing that Carter Page is an agent of foreign power. Suffice to say that Horwitz shows that there were all sorts of additional facts, including things about Steele's credibility. They had derogatory information about people who had negative things to say about his judgment. Um, you had information about his sources and whether at least one of the key subsources Steele was relying on, uh, whether that person could be trusted. Um, you had information that cut the other way from the arguments that, uh, that the FBI was putting forward, in particular, and maybe most strikingly, Although definitely not dispositively, this thing that I'm about to mention has been, I think, overtouted in some quarters. Um, Carter Page had indeed for many years had contacts with shady Russian uh, individuals, particularly Russian intelligence officers. I think that was a reasonably well-known fact. The interesting question is what, what can you fairly infer from that? The uh, application against him made it seem like, well, look, look at all these contacts with bad actors. That's that's part of the case we're building to show he's an agent of a foreign power. The reality was that Page, in at least some instances, had reported these contacts and shared insights from those communications with what's described in the report as an other government agency. That's always mm -hmm. code word for CIA, of course, um, making Page an, a so-called operational contact for the CIA. That does not mean he worked for the CIA. It doesn't mean that he wasn't, in fact, an agent of the Russian government or that he wasn't saying one thing to the Russians and another thing to his CIA friends. It just means that, like a lot of people who may come in contact with foreign intelligence of, uh, officers or other persons of interest, uh, they, they may be asked to share information to the CIA after the fact, and he did so. But, but that is a fact that if you're Carter Page, you would certainly want the fact finder to know because it... It can be viewed as perhaps supporting his view that he wasn't trying to hide something with these contacts. It was, it was you might say, exculpatory from, from a certain point of view. Um, and it wasn't conveyed to the FISA court, what indeed wasn't conveyed to the Justice Department. So um, we can go on and on about all the errors, but that, that gives you a feel for it. There was a lot of stuff being held back that, that shouldn't have been. With but and, and I think that's all critical context. And I want and we're going to get to why I'm shocked to find that there's gambling going on in this establishment. Yeah. No, no, this is this is in some ways a, a happy story, a, a bittersweet story because I think it would confirm some of your critiques of for, for how the process for like works. Ten years, but you know, keep calling me a hypocrite, everyone out there in the world. Um, but the 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 part that I think is important though is Horowitz goes out of his way to say right that it's not clear to him that the the full full candor and accuracy would have changed any of the results, right? That that he still thinks, you know, he thinks maybe it would have made a difference in the FISA court, but he doesn't say he doesn't say clearly yeah. it would have. Yeah, it's I think some people for strange reasons seem unable to see that this doesn't show that the case would have failed. Indeed, I think the the, sh the most fair thing to say about how stupid this was on I'm using FBI collectively yeah. here, mindful that there are a lot of different actors and people, and that's part of but the story. This, but, but, the, but collectively, yeah. they, they screwed themselves because you... You didn't need it. You, you, sure, you're, if you think you're going to get away with it, not saying that this is all purposeful. It could well have been a series of accidents. You can't rule that out. But the point is, um, they, in order to get and be able to preserve the ability to get these kinds of orders. You've got to have credibility. This undermines our credibility. And it's not like the type of stuff they were withholding was devastating. It wasn't devastating. No. It eroded their claim, but their claim would have been more credible 
um, overall if they've been more forthcoming. If, if no one ever finds out the stuff that was omitted, then, of course, you're even stronger. But, of course, these things did come out now. And it was a context in which it should have been obvious there was going to be an extreme degree of, of post hoc examination and review. And, in fact, I think they did understand they were going to be under the microscope, which is very interesting. Um, it tends to support something that uh, Julian Sanchez at Cato is arguing that I think is quite right, that it's much more likely that these errors, these mistakes, these, uh, these problems are the result of confirmation bias uh, rather than being witting attempts to, to screw over a Carter page or otherwise screw over the Trump campaign out of political bias, um, which is not to say that people didn't have political opinions and views that might have disposed them to the confirmation bias involved. But I think that, as Julian argues it, the right way to think about this is people involved in the investigation were just pretty sure that this was, in fact, the real story. And it led them to weight things in ways that don't look right now in retrospect and shouldn't have looked right at the time, but their their judgment um, you know failed them. So so what's the bigger picture, Steve? What's the larger significance of all this? Is it just that there's going to be some number of FBI agents who are going to have who are, you know many of which aren't even with the bureau anymore who are going to be in trouble? And and I guess we should add here there is the one guy, the FBI Office of General Counsel guy, who's the only one documented to have done something affirmatively. Right. Um, seemingly unlawful, right? Yeah. But, but I don't know if it's quite unlawful. I'm not sure quite exactly what the charge is. But clearly injected uh, a false statement, mo- seemingly modifying the meaning of an email describing that prior relationship Page may have had with the CIA, inserting the words, not a source. Right. When that is not what that person was told. Yes. That no. person's in trouble. So I think that's right. I want, to, I want to sort of answer your question in two parts. First, sort of in the abstract, and then second, in light of Judge Collier's order, which we should get to. Yep. But so before Judge Collier's order came out yesterday, you know, my reaction was that this is a, that this is yet, this is a huge deal, but for none of the reasons that, you know, the president and his supporters are making it out to be, right? That, that this is a huge deal precisely because... This is exactly what I, you know, largely thought was going to be true, right? That that I never thought that the government had dotted all, had perfectly gone through the whole process, right? I never had any faith that everyone sort of, you know, brushed and flossed three times a day, right? You know, in submitting this FISA application, I just sort of thought, having looked at and you know been studying FISA for the better part of ten years, that the FISA process is ripe for you know the government to be sloppy. Right. And sloppiness is the is to me is different from nefarious, right? That sloppy is sort of this this reads to me, and maybe that's just because I'm biased against Trump, you know, I have to consider that's a possibility. But this reads to me like ordinary government sloppiness and not, you know, we have to get Trump. Right. And those are two different problems that have different solutions. Do you think are you are you then saying the Sanchez confirmation bias theory and that combined with complexity, pressure, and laziness and, and history, lack of, lack of overall accountability, and helps history. explain what the errors were. And by. history, I mean, this is so. So you know, for the folks who are coming new to FISA, right? I mean, every time there has been even a minor scandal in the foreign intelligence context in the last fifteen years, somewhere in that scandal has been the government making misrepresentations to the FISA court. Now, misrepresentations not necessarily affirmative lies, right? But where things got lost in translation. Right. Or where the government wasn't being fully candid. I mean, we can think of you and I off the top of our heads, probably five different 
FISA court opinions that we're now privy to that have been either declassified or otherwise disclosed. But right? So but, I want to get at the underlying drivers. So you're pointing out that there's a pattern. It's a recurring uh, incident where there's there's mistakes in the factual representations. Um, do you agree that – are you saying it's it's not that they're constantly trying to get away with stuff? It's that the system overall is designed in a way that's going to keep yielding errors. And then this is a sort of extreme example because here, presumably, yeah. the greatest possible care would have been taken. So I, I think it's a, so I think it's mostly the latter with maybe a smidge of the former, right? That if there really were malicious actors, those malicious actors could be very well aware of the systemic problems, right? But I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the notion that, you know, the average government officer is not in there to screw over their political enemies. I mean, maybe these days that's less true, um, <laughs> right? But so this is the problem that I think folks like Julian and folks like me and, you know, a handful of others have been saying for years, which is no amount of executive branch reform is going to solve the one-sided nature of government applications to the FISA court, right? Like, you know, there's just no amount of process you can create that's going to make it, that's going to avoid, that's going to fully eliminate what the FISA court calls compliance incidents, right? When when the government is not fully complying with its various obligations to the FISA court for various reasons. And we've seen that, like, this is where I want everyone to understand. This is not the first time. This is not the second time. This is not the third time, right? I mean, charitably, this is the fifth time that we're aware of in the last, I don't know, let's just say 10 years, right, where the FISA court has been misled by the government. And I think, you know, there comes a point where you have to say, huh, maybe the government can't actually be fully trusted for structural, not personal reasons, right, to sort of fully, to you know, in this one-sided, ex parte, in-camera uh, litigation process. Are, are you building an argument for an amicus or a, a, a guardian ad litem type rule that's even in the ordinary you know, factual determination of agency of a foreign power in there contesting the other side. Is that where you're going so that's with the, this? That's the fight. I don't know. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last week. And, you know, as you know, I mean, I was one of the leading proponents of a special advocate. And so let me be clear, more than an amicus, like a party, right. right, in the FISA court, at least before this latest episode, at least in the non-Title I context, at least in the context right. of... And, and, and for people who don't follow this, I think it's fair to say that there's lots to talk about that, about... Uh, Ensuring there's a guardian and ad litem to take a different point of view from the government on legal interpretation issues. Um, very often, I think it's commonplace in these debates, people would say, I'm not saying there should be a guardian ad litem right. litigating the government, one. trying to do factual discovery. Yep. And and I'm not sure how well that so, would work. So, as it, I don't think you can do it ex ante because of the speed requirements. I, I, I agree. So wait, so this, this, but, but I'm also not willing to concede that it's, that it's a special advocate or bust. Right. I mean, so so this so can we talk a bit about Judge Collier's order and then and then sort of right. work in the reform convo? And so, w while you're pulling that up, yeah. the uh, it's important to note that the OIG report, uh, the big, recommends a bunch of reforms. Well, the, not only they recommend a bunch of reforms, they said, like, you know, one big question here is, is this a somehow Trump campaign specific thing? Right. Which it might be. Uh we won't know until we look at the same set of verification and factual accuracy and completeness issues across a range of cases. So they're launching an extraordinary and really important further investigation in which they're going to look, I assume they're going to sample is what they're going to do, but they're going to look more broadly at, at the run-of-the-mill cases, including run-of-the-mill counterintelligence, yeah. run-of-the-mill counterterrorism cases. That is such a huge deal. It's a huge deal. They may, at the end of that, say, you know what? We actually found 
there really aren't these sorts of problems, which is going to look really bad from the politicized claims. Uh, or they may find that, nope, it's more of a systemic problem in which field offices tend to be real good about, yes, assuring the court that this is what our source really said, but omitting things. Yes. And so, right. So sins by omission. And, sins and, by omissions, including declining to put forward a fulsome case on the credibility right. problems of the sources. And I got to say, just, you know, I would have guessed before the IG report came out, I would have guessed the latter was was to be true. Like I would have, I, I, I all but assume that the latter is true. I mean, part of why I've been beating a dead horse for years about not giving up the ghost on Pfizer reform Right. is because I just I, you know, this is one of, I think, our fundamental differences is that there's just a degree to which I am more skeptical. Right. Of, no, and in this government. case, you've gotten a significant data point in your favor. No question about it. Uh, people like me who have, who have traditionally taken the view that, well, look, I, I have a, a higher degree of trust that they're doing more of a good faith job. This is a big blow. But but, but it's not it's not the final blow. Well, but also and I, I mean, but I want I, I really want to belabor this point. There is a difference between sort of. The you know the opposite of good faith isn't bad faith, right? Like that, like that has to say, like there, you know, that something isn't in good faith okay. does not mean it's in bad yeah. faith. Misfeasance, not malfeasance. There you go. Okay, so um, Judge Collier issued this remarkable. Judge Collier, Rosemary Collier, is the outgoing presiding judge of the FISA court. She's also a federal district judge in Washington, um, and in her capacity as presiding judge of the FISA court, she issued this order out of nowhere yesterday. Um, a four-page order um, titled "Inray Accuracy Concerns Regarding <laughs> FBI Matters Submitted to the Fisk," which I guess she named herself. Um, <laughs> right? I'm like, which case is that again? Well, so this is so. I mean, can I be a Fed Courts nerd for a second? Yeah. So, so one question is, where the heck does she get the authority to just wake up one day and issue an order? Like, no, there was no motion before her. No party was asking for anything. Um, I actually think there's no Fed Courts problem here. Like, I think. Um, Federal courts and the FISA court is an Article Three court have inherent authority mm-hmm. to protect their jurisdiction. The FISA court has particular authority under FISA itself, Section 1803, and under Rule 13 of its own rules to supervise compliance right. with its orders. And so I take this as, in, you know, if the question is, where is the case in controversy to which this order is tied? I take it as a, the, the case in controversy is the underlying Carter Page FISA warrant. Absolutely. And the FISA court's jurisdiction to ensure continuing compliance, right, with the mandates in that order, in, in those in those so warrants. I agree with that, and I'll add a third piece, and yeah. all of these are mutually reinforcing. The uh, Earlier I mentioned the FBI attorney who allegedly placed uh, this statement, not a source, falsely into the, into the record for Carter Page and his relationship with the CIA. Um, that person, you can read between the lines of Collier's order, that person is involved in other cases as well, or at least potentially involved yeah. in other cases. So her order includes a line that says um, she had issued on December 5th, it turns out, some sort of order requiring some sort of steps to further investigate what other problems might trace back to that, to that particular guy. person. Yeah. Um, so all of those prior FISA applications are lurking in the background That's right. of this. All right. So after talking about how she has concerns about the government's duty of candor, right, the bottom page three says, therefore, the court orders that the government shall no later than January 10th inform the court in a sworn written submission of what it has done and plans to do to ensure that the statement of facts in each FBI application accurately and completely reflects information possessed by the FBI that is material to any issue presented by the application. In the event the FBI at the time of the submission is not yet able to perform any of the planned steps, shall also include a proposed timetable and an explanation of why, in the government's view, the information in FBI applications submitted in the interim should be regarded as reliable. Um, 
Whew. That's an interorum clause. Yes. And, that, and I think and I think really just that. Yeah. 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 Um, but then also, right, and further ordered pursuant to Fisk Rule 62 that the government shall in the later on December 20th complete a declassification review of the above reference order of December 5th in anticipation of the Fisk publishing that order. Right. And um, that's the one about the attorney we just mentioned. So that so we're probably going to see that in the next week or so. Yeah. So I think that... What's, can I say one more yeah, thing? Really? Please, so, yes. um, the, the only thing... So I talked to Byron Tao from the Wall Street Journal, who apparently is a, a listener and says we should do more Star Trek episode reviews. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Byron. Um, but so Byron, um, the, the one, Byron asked me if, you know, if this order is novel, right? And what I said to him is, I don't think that the tenor of it is novel. Cause I think, as I said, we've seen prior episodes where the fiscal is like, hey, government, you, you got us again. Yeah. Um, the contemporaneous uh, um, filing and publication of this order, I think, is novel. I cannot recall a prior Fisk order that was made public the second it was filed. So I want to argue that the Collier order is both less of a big deal and more of a big deal in, in sort of so I want to argue two different that, ways. And I want to say a third thing, which is that the Collier order is deflecting responsibility. This may be compatible with my point. So here's so my you, point. You first. So so you it, this whole thing kind of starts with the Horowitz yeah. report, which you know really brings down the hammer and, and offers a long list of things that need to be improved. And as you might imagine, the recommendations section in Chapter 12, there's all this stuff about the verification process, which I think everyone can see that this has exposed that the affirmative aspects of verification at the FBI level those may have their warts, but the the real problem is not that. It's the it's the things that weren't included, weren't affirmatively brought to the court's attention that are contrary to the FBI's interest in pursuing the application. That's where the problem is, and the IG calls for changes. Chris Ray, director of the FBI, in, in his letter... Uh, for the moment. Resp- <laughs> I think he'll stay. Um, Chris Ray's letter says, yeah... We're on it already. I, you know, once we learned it, once I learned about these things, we began. And so we're already fixing it. Completely agreed with you, sir. So what you've got are these different moves, right? Where FBI commits these errors in the past. The IG calls them out. The new FBI director steps in and says, right, totally agree. I'm with you. And we're going to fix this internally. And we're already in process of doing this. The FISC, I think, has to have some visible response here. Can't be publicly silent. I think Collier's letter reflects a sense on the judge's part quite accurately that it's imperative that the fist seem to be standing up for itself. It can't just say like, well, it looks like they got it, so I'm not going to say anything. So what does this order say? It says, you guys really need to be on this and I'm going to I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. Right, I'm imposing a timeline. So it's so it's not the case that nothing's happening, but along comes the fisk and says, "Hey, now we're mad. Now you need to do something." They're doing the same. They're doing all the things that are going to be reported to the fisk, anyways. So it's less big deal than I than I think it might otherwise seem. On the other hand, it really does matter in the following sense: um, without the fisk intervention, there's no particular deadlines and no sort of third party uh, accountability other than what maybe comes out later with the OIG's ongoing broader investigation. This ensures a different level and much more time-sensitive level of pressure. So, uh, so I do think it matters a bit on the margins there. I agree with all of that. Okay, and you didn't—you got much of the way to my point, but not all the way. So, can I can I yeah. add one thing which I don't think is inconsistent? Carry it across the finish line, um, dear Fisk. You have some responsibility for this, right? And this is this is the part of Collier's order that I find. You know, I mean, I don't—I know she couldn't really say any of this out loud, but like. What's the old line? Fool me once, shame on me, right? I mean, like the <laughs> right. I mean, or no, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, right? I, I, this is I, I like President Bush. I mess up this line. Um, 
come on, guys. I mean, how many times is it going to take? How many different episodes where you have serious compliance incidents where some external development, be it a leak or an IG report, reveals that the government has been misleading you? What is it going to take to convince you that maybe you need to be more skeptical in general, that maybe you need to adopt tighter rules yourselves within your inherent powers, right, to hold the government to a higher standard. Like, you know, I mean, I, I get the need for the court to be like, look, we're, you know, we're, we're here, we're paying attention, we're going to, you know, crack the whip. But how about some self-reflection? Because one of the things that I've found striking at every point in this process is how stunningly, at least publicly indifferent, the FISC is to its own role in failing to actually hold the government to account. We saw this during the post-Snowden reform debates where the leading defender of the status quo and the leading critic of proposed reforms to the FISC was one of the FISC's own judges. Yeah, so not surprisingly, this is an area where I'm not going to agree with you. I know. Uh, what, in this specific context, what would, have, what would it have looked like for the FISC, either at the original Carter Page yeah. application stage or the three renewals, for those, and I think there were four different judges, yeah. for any of those four judges to have, as you would put it, learn the lessons of history and be more skeptical, um, the nature of the problem presented was stuff that was known to somebody at FBI, but wasn't even passed to DOJ, let alone passed you know, to the Hunter, FISC. I'm not saying any of the four judges in the Carter Page application should have acted differently. I'm saying that Judge Collier now, right, instead of striking this, oh my God, you know, I'm shocked to find there's gambling going on in here and I want to call you on the carpet and account for yourselves. Instead of that, or at least in addition to that, how about a little bit of, you know, and, and, you know, let's start talking about reforms on the other side of the court. But that's what I'm getting at. Is I don't see for this particular provocation, if we can call it that, yeah. what is the thing that it suggests? What's the remedy that this suggests? It's clear what remedies are suggested. And, and Horowitz and Ray both talk about these within FBI, where the FBI process breaks down and what the DOJ process might have to do with that. But, but the exact, but it, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but when you get to the, but once you're presenting the application to yeah. the FISA court, you know, there, there are things one might say. One might say, well, clearly what this indicates is the need for some sort of adversariality or post hoc auditing or something like that. But none of those strike me as things that the FISC itself generates or those sound like recommendations to Congress. So I think it's mostly recommendations to Congress, but I think we ought not to discount the FISC's inherent rulemaking power, right? That that the FISC's own, I mean, Rule 13, right, is the compliance incident rule. I think it's 13B, maybe. Yeah. Um, there's nothing stopping FISC from putting more teeth into that. There's nothing stopping FISC from imposing sanctions. There's nothing like... Right. So, okay, so there, I think I think you put your finger on something that, that I agree with that. If they wanted to, and by the way... There will be a process here, but I think we're going to see that with that OGC attorney. I'd be shocked if if one thing that doesn't happen at some point is it is a sanction along the lines of you know that particular individual can never be part of a of a fisc process ever again. Of course, person doesn't work at FBI right. anymore. I, I gather right. so it's kind so, of a and so this and point. so and so this is the last thing I think I want to talk about on this topic, which is so you know what else can we do right and and this is where I think you know fisc is part of the problem. Right, and maybe there's only so much that this can do itself through its own inherent rulemaking. Right, powers. but Congress could do some stuff. And so this is where I want to say to the Lindsey Grahams of the world, put up or shut up. Right, like you know, enough with this like hand wringing about the OIG report. If you actually think that it, uh, that it identifies structural flaws in the FISA process, ah, but see, I don't think that's what a lot of the president's defenders think. They want the case to be that it was a political bias deal, so it was a distortion of the process. What seems potentially to be the case is it's not. Well, 
I don't think we actually know, right? There, that could be the case based on what we've seen so far. It definitely wasn't ruled out but here, maybe, but maybe but the it fact might that this be structural. Is, but maybe the fact that this is at least the fifth time that the government has misled the FISA court would lead us to think that maybe it's actually not. So, uh, yeah, again, I just don't see where the – to come back to the question of what can Congress do. Yes. Uh, Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer had a piece in The Atlantic yesterday that was pretty interesting, among other things. And by the way, that's cumbersome to say both Jack Goldsmith and ba- Bob Bauer. Let's say just Jack Bauer. Jack. You like? Thank I, you. I prefer Bob Goldsmith. <laughs> Bob, it's got, Jack Bauer has a better ring to it. It sounds more action-oriented. Um, so, no, he sounds like a torturer. Well, it's true. He really was. Um, amazing what that person would do episode in and out. But we don't want to digress into 24 land. I want to just highlight that they suggest, among other things, why not have um, this, this sorts of uh, penalties for false statements or incomplete disclosure uh, why not? Why not boost penalties in that respect, so that the sanction imposed on someone who actually injects a false statement, or makes, or if you can show a knowing omission of a material fact, um, it's more than just like, well, you're going to not practice in front of this court again. On the other hand, that all sounds good if we think we're going to have perfect clarity and and reasonable uh, certainty as to when those lines have been crossed. But boy, we got to be careful here because if you create some. The more the more capable the deterrence mechanism, and the more ambiguous the triggers for that deterrence mechanism, uh, the more we chill the very pursuit of the foreign intelligence function that is the reason for having this whole structure to begin with. I'm not saying the status quo is perfect. I think surely we can make things a little bit tighter with those kinds of sanctions, but I think there's also a, a grave danger of overcorrection. So let me so let me throw a proposal out to you, right? So imagine um, if you just change the rules for U.S. person targets. Right, um, you don't change the standard. Standard is still probable cause, right? With all the, you don't change anything in 1802, right? With regard to the rules, but you provide for a review process where nothing changes at the ex ante application stage, right. but seven to 14 days after the application has been approved, a FISA cleared, right, security cleared special advocate is allowed access to the file, right, and is allowed to interrogate the file and is allowed to go before the FISA court if he or she has reason to believe that anything on the file is inaccurate or incomplete, right? Now, that's, there's going to be a huge information gap there because they've That's been, the critical you know, problem, right? I understand. And so we can have a serious conversation about to what extent the special advocate should be allowed access to what the government has, right? Like some kind of Franks-like hearing. But what about, right, if your real concern is abusing this where U.S. persons are on the wrong end, you know, don't take away the government's front end authority, but create a meaningful sort of follow on review process, which hopefully will have the effect of incentivizing the government to really, you know, have its ducks in a row before it goes to the FISA court initially. I think that some version of that could be if if properly limited in its ability to then launch what might become very resource-consuming discovery probes into into these investigators. There's got to be some tailoring. You know, pulling them in for testimony all the time. Um, I think something like that could be very valuable and, and might help restore the stability that's been wounded uh, by this set of revelations. I mean, that, that would have to be done by statute. Yeah, exactly right. And then I would, in two things. One, as to this question of, well, how do you impose cost without deterring the individual agents? Well, maybe instead of having the punishments run to the individual agents involved, have more institutional consequences of some kind, or maybe, I, I don't know, um, I want to think creatively about this, because I was about to say you could offer some kind of, uh, you know, remedy to the individual who was targeted, but that requires disclosing to them that they were targeted. Some people advocate that, but in the foreign intelligence context, there's really good reason to be hesitant there. Um, it's really tricky to figure out how do you put real teeth into this. Uh, the last thing I'll say is it's 
tempting to think that we can talk uh, statutory reform all day, but nothing's going to happen. But here's the thing. Section 215 and other things that have to be renewed, that got extended, remember, past uh, Cupcake Cupcake Day Day. to the Ides of March. Uh, Though those are not the aspects of FISA that are remotely involved here, doesn't matter. The word FISA is going to be involved. That will be a must-pass sort of hook for people to put in other things. So I'm predicting for you that when we get to March 15th, unless they kick the deadline off still further, one thing we're going to see is some sorts of interventions that pertain to the Title I application process. You might even find it a very happy day, Steve. So I'm, I would love for that to be true. I'm not optimistic. I'll yep. take the under. Right. Um, so the, 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 I just want to tell one funny story, and then we should, we should pivot to, yes. to, to the Supreme Court. So um, speaking of Jack Bauer, you and I were both at a conference um, very, very early in my career and pretty early in your careers at West Point in the fall of 2007. Oh, yeah. And you might remember the story. Um, the commandant the, at the time, the, the, is it what, a three-star, right, who's the commandant of West Point, um, was telling us a story um, about how he and several of his colleagues had gone to out to Hollywood where they were filming 24, basically to have a conversation with the producers about trying not to paint torture in such a positive light and how it was actually having harmful effects on their ability to teach the next generation of military leaders, yada, yada, yada. So he shows up in his, you know, class A uniform, right, for the meeting with the producers. Oh, wasn't it, wasn't it Charlie? Was it Charlie? Isn't this is Char- no, this was Charlie Dunlap's story, I think. I, I don't know. I thought it was, was Charlie. Charlie was never the commandant of West Point. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. I think this is Charlie Dunlap's Oh, am I conflating story. two people? I'm almost positive. All right. Well, because I know Charlie sometimes listens. And so Charlie may be Char- listening right now saying like, that's ah, my story. Charlie, if this is you, I apologize for not remembering that it's you because I love the story. So the um, so there's the there's the, you know, significance of a of a flag officer going to Hollywood and be like, you got to stop doing this. That's cool. But the funny part of the story is the, the general. And if it's Charlie, I'm going to feel really dumb that I forgot this part. Um, so the general is waiting to meet with the producers while they're filming. And so the general and his aide are standing by the food spread. Uh, right, and and a guy dressed all in black walks up to him, um, and says, you know, oh, who are you playing? And the general <laughs> says, uh, I'm the commandant of the U.S. Military Academy. And he's like, oh, I didn't realize I was in this episode. <laughs> and then and then the general, and then the he's like, who are you? He's like, I'm a thug. <laughs> I'm a thug. Thug one. I'm Thug Seven. Thug Seven, basically. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm Thug Seven. Episode title. I'm. <laughs> I were you. I'm a thug. Um, well, anyways, um, so in the interest of time, let's lightning round the rest. Can so, we jump ahead? Yeah, so let me see the Supreme Court really quickly because I yeah. don't think any of this is going to be a big shock. So Friday afternoon, I think not shockingly, the Supreme Court granted certain all three of the pending Trump subpoena financial records cases. Just to remind everybody, um, two of these are congressional subpoenas, one to Mazars, that's the D.C. Circuit case, and then subpoenas also to Deutsche Bank and Capital One, that's the Second Circuit case. Those got granted and consolidated. Um, and then the Vance case, the New York DA, um, was also granted. Um, the court said in its order that these cases are going to be heard in March. Um, that So this I, the only thing I want to say is, you know, well, I want to say two things. One, okay, so the court's going to take the bull by the horns and decide all this stuff by the end of June. Um, there was a lot of reaction on the internet to the court saying we're going to take this in March and not sooner, right? And saying, well, you know, this is such a big deal. Why not expedite it? Why not go crazy? Blah, blah, blah. That's what I say. It's actually, it's not slow by Supreme Court standards. So that's what I was going to say. So, so I think I, I realize that it's hard to appreciate this from afar, and I realize that this isn't going to convince anybody otherwise. Um, 
this is the Supreme Court moving pretty quickly by its standards. Now, it's certainly true that we can think of examples where the court has moved even faster. Mm -hmm. Bush versus Gore did basically in two weeks. The Pentagon Papers case was 26 days from the initial lawsuit to the Supreme Court decision. Um, Ex parte Kieran during World War II, which I wouldn't exactly call a happy example, right, was like a couple weeks. Um, I, I think the court is does not feel like it is a true dire emergency in the way that those prior cases were. Right. Well, what is it that would happen between now and the end of June right. that would be fundamentally and clearly uh, disposed in a different way if only they could rule sooner? But, I mean, I think the, the, the argument is that, right, the House needs these, do- you know, the, the impeachment process needs these documents. There's no way this thing unfolds in a way that's going to address that. I think that's yeah. right. But I think the larger point is, you know, I, I think it was, first of all, I think it was unrealistic to expect the court to move any faster. But that this actually is, I mean, if we look at the timeline from when the circuit court decisions were to when there's going to be oral argument in the Supreme Court, that's remarkably fast. But second, I'm not sure we would have wanted the court to move faster. I mean, if we think about the cases historically where the Supreme Court has moved with remarkable expedition. Not their best. We don't think about those among the pantheon of like good Supreme Court decisions. I think that the argument that the impeachment process needs, oh, yes, in the abstract, of course, the impeachment process should have this information. But, um, but the House did not go down that path. The, uh, the committees that are that are trying to gather this information are not part of the process of trying to generate the articles of impeachment. That process is resolving as we speak. It's yeah. already it's already about to lock in as what it is. But I just want to say, like, I think I think you know, it's I understand that in absolute terms, the Supreme Court looks like it's not moving fast. I yeah. just want to say, as someone who actually does this for a living, the court's moving faster than normal. Yep. And I think that's a you know when it didn't have to. And I actually think that one of the things that I take away from Friday's order. Um, is actually probably not a great sign for Trump, right, that the court is now committed to resolving all of these cases by the end of June, as opposed to perhaps dragging its feet and hoping that the political process takes care of itself. Like that's, you know, yeah, they're going to resolve this. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I'm not sure at the end of the day that that's that that's going to be good for the president. But maybe, you know, I mean, we'll talk more about these cases as we get closer to the argument. Um, let me note that the uh, National Defense Authorization Act has now passed uh-huh. both the House and the Senate, and the president has indicated he's absolutely going to sign it. He's getting Space Force, um, so and, and, and he's get and, and wait this so it's just the height of, of bullshit cynicism, and he's getting uh, family medical leave for federal employees, which he's saying you know thank you Ivanka for you know spearheading this important development to ensure that two million Americans. It's like, dude. It's, Stop lying. I, just stop lying. I have not been following that particular side of the story, but I have been following the part of the NDA. Space Force. Not even the Space Force part. I've been I've been focused on the Cybercom parts. I've got a post up just a few hours ago at Lawfare that describes a really interesting modification to this legal framework that's what requires Cybercom or the Secretary of Defense to give written notification within 48 hours to the House and Senate Armed Services Committees when it conducts what's called a sensitive military cyber operation. I won't unpack that here. Uh, We'll talk about it next week, maybe. But if you want to get the details in the meantime, it's all there at Lawfare. Steve, let's stop all the seriousness and let's talk about Dear Evan Hansen, which you and and Karen and me and Heather all turned up, not on the same row, but... uh, we didn't have quite the good seats you had. We might have been too close. I did not. It was very fun to run into you there. I walk. Yeah. We walk in, and there you were, right in the entrance. I do kind of stand out in the crowd. Okay, so you were, uh, you and Karen were right up front. Was that bad to be that close? I've never sat that close on a. On I think a it was, we were, live we were, production. We were in the second row, but we were like way to the side. And so I think if we had been, angle, so yeah. I think if we'd been second row center, it would have been, it would have been, you know, better. But I, I still loved it. It was still great. Well, I was very curious. Did you feel like you experienced the show different than normal because you could really see their facial expressions yes. and gestures yes. in a different way? Yes. So was it just like being up close on, a, on an NBA game? I think that's right. 
Yeah. But something we've done. It's, you, exactly. Which, by the way, we got to do that again. Can't you hook me up with another great San Antonio Spurs ticket? Let, let me see if I, I mean, we will never top those. Tickets. No, that was incredible. This is, uh, uh, I, I got, I, I was able to uh, to acquire through a friend uh, for not just courtside tickets, but bench side tickets. Oh, it was a dream come true for me. I loved that. That was so much fun. Basically, like, Pop, Pop was standing right in front of us the whole game. Oh, it was awesome. So. I was, I was so happy. And that's the last thing we'll say about the Spurs. Um, yeah, yeah, fair. So, so you and I both went in with like a vague awareness of what Dear Evan Hansen was about, but I think without like full knowledge of the of the plot. Your wife had a very funny tweet right before the show started saying that um, here was Steve and Bobby's here too, and they don't know what this is about, and they're not ready. Therefore, um, that that actually was helpful to me because it set my uh, fear of sort of a Mister Rogers, I'm going to cry a bunch yeah. kind of experience so high that in the end I wasn't actually you know too terrified or too too bittersweetly overwhelmed um so i really liked it yes uh did you know that all eight performers were all the understudies or alternates that night we had the entire uh second team oh is that right yeah i thought, I thought, I thought just evan hansen was the understudy no the whole so the card that was in the playbill yeah. was all, all eight uh and i thought they were great I thought um, no, no. Seven were so the card had all eight parts, but seven of them were the were the regular people. Are you sure? Yes. Only oh, Evan, darn. Only Evan Hansen was an understudy. Well, I was super impressed until you said that. Now I'm just normal impressed. But he was great. I thought I thought yeah. they were all great. But let's talk about the the larger themes. And, of and I thought show. I thought the um, I thought the um, oh shoot, who's the sister? The, I thought she was fantastic. The, the sister was very good. Yes. I thought the parents were the parents, exceptional. Yep, all yep, three parents yep, involved. Yep. Um, and I especially like the guy that played Connor. Well, yeah. uh, I thought he was yeah, yeah. his. That was a, it's a it's they're a just, great role. Good. They're all good. Uh, so, on on the treatment of, do you think do you have any qualms with how they treat? By the way, spoilers about. To oh yeah, out. right. So yeah, don't listen to this <laughs> if you're planning to see it. All right. So, post spoiler alert. Uh, so so Connor kills himself. Right. Um, I was pretty soon when early. I realized that was going to be part of the plot. I became very concerned. Like, how are they going to treat this? Um, and will there be in any way any sort of glorification or otherwise positive treatment? Um, and I feel pretty ambiguous about it. I'm not entirely happy with, with really how that was worked. I understand how it supported the plot and made possible the plot. But at the end of the day, there is not a lot of reflection on the, the, the vast amount of the horror involved with the, with a suicide, uh, teen suicide. Well, as, not as that, much as I would have. Is that true? I mean, wanted I, to see. I mean, Requiem. I think is right. Re, I mean, I think Requiem. The whole like Requiem, which is I think one of the most powerful songs in the whole play, is basically sort of, you know, Connor's family struggling to figure out like what to do about you know like how to how to sort of make sense of his suicide. Yeah, I, I agreed. I mean, so they don't ignore it. They don't act like it's nothing. They. I. I guess what I'm saying is. They're on the spectrum of paying lip service to it in that way. And then overall, it ends up being a very positive experience. Everyone is better off. And, and, and I'm really worried it kind of sends a message of like, you know, Connor was, in fact, deadly dangerous to his sister, locks herself in the yeah. room because she thought he might kill her at some point. Uh, and it sort of sends a signal of, well, post the initial shock and grief, everyone's better. The family's now, the, the parents are tied again, the, the daughter's going to go live her life. It was a wound, but everyone got better for it. I, I don't know. It made me uncomfortable. So the, I mean, the play. So this is, I mean, this is my overall reaction. Was that the play is uncomfortable, right? I mean, like the, you know, it's, it's not like a happy joy. Like, like you know, no one would, no one would say that like the plots of Hamilton and Rent are happy, right? I mean, like those are both pretty, you know, mm-hmm. um, serious, heavy, you know, productions. 
But you don't walk out of it feeling, you know, like morally comp- ambiguous, right? Like, I mean, like, you know, there are clear morals yeah. to those stories. And I think Dear Evan Hansen is meant to be not that. I'm not even sure it's properly understood as a musical as opposed to a play with a lot of music I agree it, with that. Right? I, I guess what I'm saying is I wanted to feel more challenged in that respect. I wanted to feel more uncomfortable. I wanted there to be... Oh, I already be... felt very uncomfortable, especially the second act. when Because, like, the second act, they're all just screaming at each other the whole time. So, but I would distinguish between discomfort with the treatment of yeah. suicide versus the threes company level of discomfort. Yeah. That, that, so there's... That that part is, is funny discomfort and it's uh, it's the anxiety of the, the person who's gone out on the limb and you know that limb's going to cut off and he's going to get humiliated. By the way, can I say that uh, focusing on, not on the serious part, but on that part, the more superficial part of it how much the whole thing reminded me of can't buy me love you know patrick dempsey the whole thing was so uh so evocative of that i felt like in the character i almost expected him at a certain point to say oh cindy you you really destroyed me you know like start reading the lines from patrick dempsey's sort of breakout movie by the way go back and watch can't buy me love again it holds up pretty well my teenagers enjoyed it so my problem with Evan hansen is i don't like evan hansen the character. The, the character, like I just I find him like like I understand that he has a very difficult you know upbringing and, and and is in a very difficult place in his life, but he makes choices that I just cannot you know that 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 just rub me such the wrong way right along the way. He creates his own problem by he goes so far into the carried away with the story, right. gets himself for, for 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 reasons that could be viewed of as very selfish. Well, that yeah, I agree with that. I right. agree and with not, that, and not not no, like he, not altruistic at all. He wants the the stable home life, and he's and he sort of intuits this opportunity. The, and, and he has the cover of like, oh, I'm doing them good. I'm making them feel better. And look what this gets me. Right. And I basically sort of uh, slide into the position that Connor could have had in this family and I become the the missing son good for him but what a pack of lies that are bound to get exposed at some point uh, I thought the uh, treatment of social media and the use of social media was actually it was expecting to be edgier and a bigger part of yeah, it it was, it was okay of, it was like it was like eh Right. Yeah. It, like I, I thought there was gonna be more like bullying and peer pressure stuff in there, and it really was actually pretty yeah. tame. It actually was just like no, that's just their communication platform, and right. it's it's a way for a message to. It shows you that if somebody puts something out there, it can quickly slip out of your hands. But eh, that's not that great an insight. Yeah. So, um, and, and I guess so I, mixed I just, review. This is turning a little bit negative. Well, so it's just I, I mean I don't. It's not a play you're supposed to walk away from. Like oh my god, that was like I'm so happy and uplifted by seeing that play. Right, as opposed to Hamilton, you walk away you're like that was like the most amazing three hours of my life. So I don't need. I can feel great about it and love it without feeling uplifted. Although, as I've said many times on the show in our frivolity, like you know the stuff we spend our day job focusing on is depressing enough. Right. I don't. I, I'm not mostly in the market for the this depressing. Is, this is the fun I have with Karen. When Karen wants to see some like fictional, like Rachel getting married, right? Karen wants to go see like some dark fictional movie. I'm like, why do I need to see a dark fictional movie? No, no the real world is darker. All I have to say, well, so I made I've made a huge mistake lately. I started watching The Handmaid's Tale. Is it enjoyable? I've never, I've never watched it. <sighs> enjoyable is is not the word I would use. It is stunning. It is riveting. It is impossible to turn off, and it is absolutely horrifying. Tell me this: Do you think that I, as a as a relative I mean, conservative, is no longer a word I really like yeah. to use, but as a, as a as a Christian, yeah, and as someone whose political views are you know certainly to the right of yours, yeah. yeah. Do you think I would enjoy the show? Would I would I feel 
and, I, and I'm saying this because I don't really know the plot. I've heard you know yeah, yeah, vague yeah. descriptions of it. I don't know. Do you think I'd I'd have trouble with it? What I feel what I feel a little bit you know unfairly feel, critiqued on things that are no, part of my identity. No, I don't think I don't think that's true at all. That's right? good because I think it's a particular kind of zealotry. Like it's clear from the beginning. I mean, there's a there's a there's a divide between two of the main characters where they start on team religious you know yeah. fervor and then they sort of drift apart. Are there any positively portrayed religious characters? Um, not that there has to be. I'm just wondering whether I would find yes, this yes, but a stacked deck. Yes, but their religion is not central to their identity, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you would experience it differently for the principal reason that I think you will find the world it portrays to be far further away from the world we live in today than I do. Like because because what what I find truly, and I don't want to give away any spoilers because yeah, I think you know, right. but but what I find truly what what really sort of um, sort of knocks my, you know, sort of um, punches me in the gut about the show is that at least for me, it is not hard to imagine a discrete set of circumstances, not where we are today, but to, to see the path that gets us from where we are today to the world of Gilead. Um, and I think that that's that how how far away that world seems compared to where we are today is going to be deeply a function of one's politics and religious beliefs. Right. right. Um, so I don't know if that's going to make the show less enjoyable or actually maybe more enjoyable because you won't feel like, oh my gosh, this is what we're heading for. Right, right. I, I imagine actually, I might be able to watch and be like, well, this is ridiculous. No one, that's never going to go that right. far. Um, okay, well, you're persuading me I should check it out and I'll do it with an open mind. But, maybe, oh, it's should, hard. I, should I watch that in like, you know, should I read that, read the book and Left Behind series like at the same time to like get, get sort of a stereoscopic effect? <laughs> I, but so, but this is, so this is the contrast that I'm left with, though, right? Which is Dear Evan Hansen struck me as like, you know, um, pretty, right? And the music is lovely. Right. It's like, oh, that was a fun great. performance but of the, art. But like, I don't know where I end up on the story. Yeah, where's right. the deeper, right. what's the lesson? Uh, Whereas Handmaid's Tale, I'm like, you know, just punch me. In the, oh, oh, you want to punch me in the gut? Okay, here. <laughs> you know what? I haven't been punched in the gut enough today. More punching in the gut. Let's go more. Okay, deeper. I, will, I will add this to the queue with all the other things. I'm Although Elizabeth on. Moss is so Stunning. Oh, she's incredibly talented. I mean, I thought she. I already thought she was incredibly talented. Yeah. Um, Next level. This is there. There aren't words. There there aren't enough awards to give for her performance. Now, if you're going to have me go watch something, is yes. it going to be the fabulous Mrs. Maisel? Is it going to be marvelous Mrs. Marvelous Maisel? Yes, fabulous, marvelous. Um, or is it is it uh, Handmaid's Tale? Finishing the Crown? Catching up on Mandalorian? You see my problem. Well, good thing it's Christmas break. Fair point. Slash, slash holiday break. This is this is Karen and I. There you go. Uh, the, Karen Karen is Karen is 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 moving to Texas has been very good for our family with one except well two exceptions. One is we're far from the rest of our family. Sure. Um, two is it has brought out a certain anti Christmas militancy on the part of certain members of my family. Bah humbug is all I can say to that. Well, just the, just that you know there is much more of I think a concerted effort in some parts of the country to be like ecumenical and non denominational in your holiday wishes, and I think there's a little more Christmasing in Texas. Well, I will say that this is exactly this is just another version of the point we we're just talking about, Indeed. which is that's how it appears from your seat and from my seat. It seems like, gosh. We don't say a lot about Christmas at this time of year as much as we used to. And yeah. it's it's a trend that seems very much the other war direction. On, war on Christmas. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's all in the eye of the beholder is the takeaway from both lines of observation. And, uh, you know, we're not going to convince our listeners one way or the other. But we can at least agree and I hope they'll all agree that it's been a great year. Um, are we going to record? Has it been a great year? 
It's been a great year for this podcast. Okay, is uh, what okay. I meant. Okay. With, that, with that qualification, <laughs> I'm not sure 2019 is going in the books for me. It's a great year. So, are we going to record, record next, next week? Hmm. We could. May, I, I may, think maybe we'll leave it as a mystery. Yeah, we'll leave that open. Um, maybe as a, as a as a Hanukkah slash Christmas slash non denominational New Year's present. Which, by the way, Happy Hanukkah! Thank you. Uh, Merry Christmas! Thank you. Merry New Year! See, look, look what we just did, y'all. We can we can all be happy with other people's things. Yes, we can. Th- that can be their thing, and that's okay. Merry New Year! Merry New Year, everybody! Um, all right, stay safe out there. Adios. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas.